Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Ether 1 through 5. Now, quick technical note. We're actually going to be doing Ether 1 through 6. Bryce and I have talked about it. We just think that that kind of fits with what we're planning to do with this podcast. And so just note that even though Come Follow Me says 1 through 5, we're going to do 1 through 6. So with that, Moroni picks up this text. It's been translated by Mosiah. And Moroni is like, I want to put this in here. And it is one of the biggest gifts of the Book of Mormon. I am so grateful for Moroni. I'm grateful that the Lord let Moroni live long enough to give us the book of Ether, because this, at least the first six chapters, the journey of the Jaredites to America is extremely symbolic of our journey through mortality. And if you've listened to Mike over these podcasts, he tells you a lot about, you know, chaos and darkness, and the sea is very symbolic of mortality. And for me, the beauty of this portion, the the first six chapters of Ether, is because we get a front row seat to see how Heavenly Father deals with His children. We get to see rules that govern revelation. Now, I'm guessing all of you have had a question about how does prayer really work? Because sometimes we struggle. We pray for things and then answers do and they don't come or we get impressions and that connection, how heaven connects with earth, how Heavenly Father speaks, can be one of the most confusing portions of the gospel. And so as we look at the brother of Jared interacting with the Lord, we learn some very, very valuable lessons. First of all, I love starting in verse 34. 34 through 39 uses the phrase, cry unto the Lord cry unto the Lord. And I think one of the things that we need to know is that prayer should not be this ritualistic, you know, hey, we can't eat until we say a prayer. Not that that's wrong. I'm just simply saying that we need to elevate our prayers to the level of cries unto God. Boyd K. Packer taught that there's a major difference between saying prayers and praying He told the story about his little boy and a cow that they had who had punctured a wire and looked like she was going to pass away. The vet did all that they could, but it looked like the cow was going to pass away. And Boyd K. Packer was going to travel for his church assignments for several days. He was going to be gone. His little boy, whose cow it was, kind of, was saying the prayer. And after saying all the things that we normally do, bless daddy in his travels and bless us at school. Then that little boy started to pray. Then he cried unto the Lord. And he said, please bless bossy that she will get to be all right. When Elder Packer came back from his travels several days later, bossy had got to be all right. There is a difference between sometimes what we call prayer and crying unto the Lord. Because I love in verse 35 and 37 and 40 that when we cry unto the Lord, it stirs the Lord to compassion. The brother of Jared cries unto the Lord and the Lord has compassion. 
So one thing we need to learn early about this journey to the promised land is that we need to consistently cry unto the Lord. Now, the next one I would point out is at the very end of verse 43, we're still in Ether chapter 1, the Lord says, This I will do unto thee, because this long time ye have cried unto me. Nephi and so many prophets talk about pray without fainting. And so here the Lord says, look, I'm going to do this because you never fainted. You, you never gave up. And I wonder if one of the things we need to see in ourselves, not just that the Lord needs to see it, but we need to see it, is that we really do genuinely want this. And we will pray for it continually if we really want it. As a parent, I've learned the difference between, oh, I want that, and when they really want something. Let me give you an example. When my oldest was a younger girl, she wanted a turtle. I don't know why, but she wanted a turtle. Now, how many times, parents, have you heard your children say they wanted something that they really didn't want, but this girl wanted a turtle? And she said it all the time. We'd be driving around and she'd say, oh, look, that lawn ornament, it's a turtle. And she would talk about turtles all the time. And constantly, I want a turtle. So one day I decided, and I'll be honest, I was trying to discourage her from wanting a turtle. So I said, why don't you write a paper? She was old enough to type and to do a little investigating. Why don't you write a paper on how to take care of a turtle? Because I thought, a, she probably won't want to write the paper. What do you do if she does? And then if she does write the paper, she'll figure out how hard turtles are to take care of, and that'll discourage her. So why don't you write a paper on how to take care of a turtle? Well, I came home the very next day to a four-page paper with pictures and everything on how to take care of a turtle. Then you say, well, where's your footnotes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, guess what we did that day? We went and got a turtle. And I think this phrase, Ether chapter 1, is why. This will I do unto thee, because this long time ye have cried unto me. I know, and you now know, that this is what you truly desire. Because you didn't faint, you kept asking. And I think that's a significant portion. Some of our prayers are delayed to see if we faint and stop asking. I think as a father, you were verse 35, 37, and 40. Yeah. You had compassion. Yeah, because she kept crying unto her parents. All right, number three. The number three lesson that I, I love to pull out of this little journey to America is that this is a three-legged journey. There are major different pieces, and we're going to focus on the different legs of this journey. Leg number one is from the Tower of Babel into a valley called Nimrod. It was a known valley. I would guess that this has been a very traveled route. And so chapter 1, verse 42, the Lord says, For this first leg, go at the head of them down into the valley which is northward, and there will I meet thee. I'm not going with you. This you can do on your own. I will give you more instructions when you have obeyed this first piece of information. Get to the Valley of Nimrod, and then I'll get you more. And I think that portrays a very important lesson on Revelation. If you want more Revelation, 
you must follow the revelation you've received. One of the reasons we silence the Lord to giving us more is because we don't follow what he's already given us. Well, why, why should he give us more? What are we saying to him? If you don't follow the revelation he has given you, aren't you basically saying, Lord, don't speak to me because I don't listen and I don't follow? But what happens if you are the kind of person, Lord, if you give me an impression, I'm going to act on it. What you're saying is, I'm the kind of person that you can trust. I'm the kind of person that will get things done. If you give me information, I'm going to follow it. And so I think this first leg of the journey, it's critical to see the Lord say, you know, get to the Valley of Nimrod. I'm not going with you. I will meet you there, and I will give you more instructions once you get there. So one critical uh, principle of Revelation is, if you want more, You have to obey the revelation you've received. You have to respond to the promptings he's given you if you want him to give you more promptings. Now, the next leg of the journey is very interesting. Go to chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 are the next leg of the journey. After they leave the valley of Nimrod, they go through a wilderness. And it says in verse 5 that we're now in chapter 2, Never has men been through this wilderness. So clearly, this is a dangerous leg of the journey. From Babel to Nimrod seems to have been well-traveled. You can handle it. You don't need my help. But here's the instructions. You'll get more when you get to the wilderness. But now, as they go through the wilderness, this is high danger. This is very dangerous area. No man has ever been in this wilderness. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us at the end of verse 6 that they are continually directed by the hand of the Lord. When you go through the wilderness, when the danger is high, you can expect God to be very close and to speak very clearly. He will hold your hand. Now, notice very carefully in verse 6, what did he hold their hand and teach them to do? while they were traveling in the wilderness. They built barges. This is When they get to the beach, they, they knew how to build a barge. Because while they were going through the wilderness, there were many opportunities to cross many waters, says verse 6. Therefore, the Lord has showed them how to build a barge. That's very important. But here's the principle. When you're going through the wilderness, you can expect the Lord to be very, very specific and very clear. When the danger is high, so will the magnitude of his voice to you. He's not going to let you, he's not, he's not going to leave you alone in the wilderness. So he holds their hand. But that now leads to a major mistake that we all often make. It's a mistake that missionaries make when they come home from their missions. It's the mistake that we make when we come out of our childhood and go into our adult years. It's a very, very common mistake. When you're in the wilderness, you kind of get used to how frequently, how consistently, how quickly he speaks to you. The next leg of the journey. So they come out of the wilderness and they get to a beach. They are no longer in the wilderness. And they're on a beach. But they know that this isn't the end of their journey. They're supposed to cross the, the river. 
but they sit on that beach, verse 13, for four years. And when the Lord finally speaks, he is not happy. He is not happy that they sat on the beach for four years. Now, he tells them, he chastens them for not calling upon the name of the Lord. I, I struggle to think that the brother of Jared, who is about to see him, didn't pray. It, to me, what he's saying is, you missed a very important aspect of calling upon the name of the Lord, and that is taking the responsibility when you can solve your own problems. So they come out of a wilderness where they are in the habit of being led by the Lord, and they get to the beach where the danger isn't, and he goes silent. And they sit there waiting for him to give them instructions. But the difference is they know what to do. They know how to build barges. The danger is not as high. So build a barge. Now, those of you who served a mission and you came home, I'm guessing you had a beach-like experience where the Lord went silent. And it probably frustrated you because you assumed maybe you were doing something wrong. He used to talk so frequently to you, and now all of a sudden he's not. And many return missionaries assume that they've sinned or that they are not being very spiritual. But the reality is they're out of the wilderness. A mission is a very wilderness-like experience where you need constant revelation. But then you come home and you're on the beach, and the Lord now expects you to tackle some things on your own. It is not meat that I should command in all things, especially when you're out of the wilderness and you don't need constant help. They knew how to build a barge. They had all the equipment they needed to build those barges. But they sat there waiting for the Lord to tell them what to do. And so many of us, so many people are just sitting here waiting for the Lord to tell us what to do, rather than taking our own initiative and tackling those things on our own. Quite often, God expects you to act first. I like that phrase, we should be anxiously engaged. Yeah, anxiously engaged and not wait. Do you remember, Mike, when when the Israelites are coming out of the wilderness into the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan River. And so they've got the Ark of the Covenant out there first. Now, can you imagine if the priests holding the Ark are standing on the bank waiting for the river to part? How long do they wait there? Four years, probably. When does the river part? When does the Lord actually step in and now help them by parting the river? they got to move. When they step into the river. I like what Elder Oak says, where he says, so many of the great revelations come when we're on the move. Yes. If we just sit and wait, it's not going to happen. When my sons go on missions, I say, if you don't have appointments that day, just go outside and talk to people. You're not going to get what you need to get sitting in your closet in your apartment. You've got to go outside. And if you're moving, God will direct you, right? Get off the beach. Build a barge. Take the initiative. And then in the process, he'll speak. Step into the river. And that's when the Lord will come and part it. Now, in the wilderness, there are times where he jumps out and speaks. I remember one time on a bus, I was told exactly who to talk to. I remember one time we, well, we walked into a clearing and the Lord very quickly said, you run. 
He just told me to run. I don't know why. I don't know what the danger was, but we ran. And so when you're in the wilderness, he holds your hand. But when you're on the beach, don't sit there and wait for revelation. Move. Step into the river. Build a barge. And then the revelation will come. But that's a common mistake we make, is we sit on the beach and we wait for revelation. So another important principle of revelation is when you're on the beach, build a barge and move forward. And the revelation will come as you move. Now, that leads to another experience, which is kind of a summary of what we've talked about. It's kind of a summary of the, um, the Valley of Nimrod leg and the beach leg. So they start building these barges. Verse 17, they are tight like a dish. Now, the problem with a barge that's tight like a dish that has a top and a bottom and is tight like a dish is that, verse 19, there is no light in them. And we will perish because we cannot breathe, save it is the air which is in them. So the brother of Jared goes back to the Lord and says, I've got two problems, Lord. I've got an air problem and a light problem. Now, those are not of equal concern. If they don't solve the air problem, they die. These barges become coffins. If they don't solve the light problem, it's an inconvenience. They just have to go to America in the dark. But the air will end their life. So notice verse 20, what the Lord does with the air. Again, back to the wilderness journey. When the danger is high, instructions are clear. In fact, I don't know if you've ever pondered this as you've read this. What were the instructions given to the brother of Jared on how to get air into the vessel? The Lord says in verse 20, Behold, thou shalt make a hole in the top and also in the bottom. And when you suffer air, unstop the hole. Now think about that. You want to solve my air problem, Lord, by having me drill a hole in the bottom of my boat. Does that make any sense to you? Why would the Lord command them to build, to drill a hole in the bottom of the boat? I, for one, I'll admit, I, for one, would have been tempted not to obey this instruction. It doesn't make sense to me. But let me remind you that they are in an air situation and the danger is very high. And if they don't solve it, they're going to die. So the instructions of the Lord are critical, whether you understand them or not. Now, when do you think they understood these instructions? When did the need to have a hole in the bottom of the boat become very clear? When the bottom of the boat became the top of the boat. And then I'm sure the brother of Jared went, oh, that's why he told us to do that. So don't be surprised if you're in an air situation where the danger is high and the instructions that come are confusing or they don't make sense to you, but you get a very strong impression that that's what you need to do. You know, we're going to see some of this in the Doctrine and Covenants. A lot of the The Lord says keep going west. He keeps pushing them west. And there's this line in there where he says, you hear about wars in foreign countries, but you don't know what's at your doors. And in 1861, when this nation's destroying itself, the saints are in the valley. And I think sometimes 
you know, it's easy to look back and say, oh, that makes sense. But if you lived that in New the York, time, going west was not it made no sense. Made no, drill a hole in the bottom of my boat, move why, out to Salt Lake. Why would I sell my farm in New York? I got a great farm, Lord, and the Lord's like, I don't care, get out. Yeah, and, but you're in an air situation. You don't know the danger that's coming. Now, sometimes going to college is an air situation. Sometimes, for some of you coming out of high school, he made it very clear where to go, or maybe it was where not to go. And he was very, very specific. And it may have been very painful for you, but he got you where he, he got a hole in the bottom of the boat so that when the boat flipped, you had access to air. I think that's an important doctrine to realize that sometimes we are in an air situation and his instructions are very clear and we need to be obedient. The frustration in an air situation is that I may not like or want the specific information he's giving me, but danger is high. Now compare that to what he does next. After he drills the holes, he comes back and says, what do we do about the light situation, Lord? Wilt thou suffer that we cross this great water in the darkness? And tell me what the Lord's response was this time. Does he respond the same way? Is he very, very specific? He's not. Verse 23. He says, what will ye that I should do? And many of us find ourselves in light situations and are hoping that the Lord will step in and tell us what to do. I had a sweet student once whose parents were called as a mission president as she was graduating from high school. And she was praying whether to stay here in the United States or go with her parents to their mission. And no answer was coming. And she prayed and prayed and prayed and no answer was coming. She came to see me in frustration saying, I guess I don't understand prayer. And the more we talked, I suggested... I think you're in a light situation. And the Lord is saying, what do you want him to do? And this is hard. We're frustrated in air situations because we may not like how specific the Lord is being. Or the instructions don't make sense. In a light situation, we're frustrated because he's not speaking. But guess why he's not speaking? It's because the danger is low and you are more than capable of handling this. So you make a decision. You tell him how he can help you, but you make a decision. Bryce, I really like this by Brigham Young, where he says, if I don't know the will of my Heavenly Father and what he requires of me in certain transactions, if I ask him to give me wisdom concerning any requirement in my life or in regard to my own course or that of my friends or my family or my children or those that I preside over— and I get no answer from him, and then I do the very best that I can that my judgment will teach me, he is bound to own and honor that transaction, and he will do so to all intents and purposes. That's exactly the light situations we face. Think about how many decisions you have to make in your life. So many. How many times are you in in a light situation? Now, going back to that, some of you when it came to choosing a college and moving on from high school or choosing a career, some of you were in in an air situation where the Lord made it very, very specific, very clear. And some of you were in a light situation where you were begging for instructions and none came. 
But do you see why? In your situation, none of the choices you were considering were dangerous. None of them would have harmed you. Any one of them would have led to your purposes on on earth. And so the Lord basically was saying, you decide and ask him to help you in your decision. But the decision is yours. Now, he does give the brother of Jared some specifics. He says, you can't have windows and you can't have fire. And sometimes the Lord will do that. You make a decision, but you can't do this and you can't do this. But again, the decision is yours. So bishops will tell you that sometimes when a vacancy occurs in a ward and they need to call someone, sometimes it's an air situation where the Lord comes down and says, here is the person you need to call. And very specific instructions are given to the bishop. Even maybe they don't understand. But then there are other times when they're in a light situation and the Lord basically says, Bishop, who do you think you should call? Well, I'm waiting for you to tell me, Lord. No, you move forward. You make this call. And we have to understand the difference between a light situation and an air situation. And when we're in an air situation, listen to what he's saying. Move west, saints. You have no idea the danger you're facing if you're here in the east in the 1860s. Move west. Or go to that particular school or choose this. This is very important and danger is high. But also recognize when you're in a light situation and you want instruction and the Lord says nothing. Because you are more than capable of making this decision. You choose. And how can I help you in your choice is what the Lord says. And then there's one more that I think we want to mention. Let's turn to chapter 6, to the actual journey. This is why Mike and I want to include chapter 6 this week. If you'll go to verses 5 and 6, the journey to America, this is where they actually get in the boats and they travel to America. If you look at verse 5 and 6 and you say, okay, why is it that they couldn't have windows? Why is it that they had to have a top on their boat? Why did they have boats that were tight like a dish? What's going to happen to these boats? And in verse 5, we get a very fascinating word, tossed. And again, back to the symbolism of the journey to America being like mortality, you and I, my dear friends, are going to be tossed. We are going to be tossed in this mortal life. You are going to be headed in one direction and then all of a sudden slapped in the face and tossed. Verse 6, you're going to be buried. We all have moments where we are buried. You will be buried in life. And then I love this next one in verse 6. I don't know that love this is the great phrase, but I'm very intrigued with this next phrase. You will be broke Upon, meaning something else is breaking and crashing on you. Sometimes it will be someone else's agency that crashes down upon you. Those of you who had your parents divorce when you were young, you were broke upon. It wasn't your marriage that was breaking. It was theirs. But the consequences landed on you, and you were broke upon. We will be tossed, buried, and broke upon. 
in this journey. Now, what is tossing, burying, and breaking upon us? In verse 6, it's the mountain waves and the great and terrible tempests. Life brings mountain waves and great and terrible tempests. Now, what's causing the mountain waves and the great and terrible tempests? Verse 5, the furious wind. So, my boat, my life, my journey through mortality, I'm going to be tossed, buried, and broke upon because of the mountain waves and the great and terrible tempests, which are being caused by the winds, the furious winds that blow. So, wind is causing mountain waves, which are tossing me. So, now go back to Ether chapter 2. Where are the winds coming from? Verse 24, we have one more phrase that's going to happen to the boat. We're going to be dashed upon. But the end of verse 24, nevertheless, I will bring you up out of the depths of the sea, for the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and the floods have I sent forth. So put those all together. I'm going to be tossed in mortality because of mountain waves and a great and terrible tempest, which are caused by furious winds that are coming out of the Lord's mouth. So the Lord then says, what will you that I should do unto you? How can I help you? I prepare you against these things. You can't cross the great deep, save I prepare you against the waves of the sea. So what do you want me to do to help you? Now, I don't know about you, but my hand would immediately shoot up and I would say, how about not blowing the wind? The geek in me comes out and says, can we get a transporter like in Star Trek? Just transport us over there. Yeah, I love those conveyor belts that take me at the airport from parking into the, can I just conveyor belt to through mortality? Can I just escalator through mortality? How about not blowing the wind? Now, think about that. Quite often when we pray, we ask the Lord to stop the wind. In other words, we pray for a change of circumstances. And But what the Lord is asking here is, what do you want me to do for the boat? How can I help the boat? And I think the principle that we're need, we need to talk about is, I think there's a... a a time and a place to ask the Lord to change our circumstances. Jesus did that in Gethsemane. if If it's okay for Jesus to do, then I would assume it's okay for us to do, to pray that our circumstances be changed. But when the Lord doesn't change our circumstances, what's the next prayer? Then help me change me. God is asking the brother of Jared, what can I do for the boat? How can I help you when you're tossed? We need to pray to change us. I think we should continue to pray. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying to change our circumstances. Lord, change my circumstances. But if you're not going to change my circumstances, here's how you can change me. And that is the prayer we really should be uttering. 
I think that's what Jesus said in Gethsemane. Father, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Change my circumstances. There's something about having us changed. The famous Orson F. Whitney quote where he basically says, when we're struggling, do we go to somebody who's never had a struggle or do we go to somebody who's been through it? He says, when we want counsel and comfort, we don't go to children or to those who know nothing but pleasure and self-gratification. We go to men and women of thought and sympathy who suffered themselves and give us the comfort that we need. Is this not God's purpose? He wants him to become more like himself. God has suffered more than anyone has suffered and is therefore the great source of sympathy and consolation. There is always a blessing in sorrow and humiliation. Those who escape these things are not the fortunate ones. That's a powerful statement. That is a powerful statement. Yeah. So when Jesus says, Father, if thou be willing, take this cup from me, change my circumstances, the very next thing that happens is an angel comes to strengthen him. In other words, the angel was there to say, your circumstances are not going to change. So then he prays again. Jesus utters two prayers in Gethsemane. The first one is, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. The second one is, if this cup isn't going to pass from me. Then he seems to be saying, strengthen me as I drink it. So how about we say to the Lord, for example, Lord, bless my baby that it will sleep tonight. But if it's not going to sleep, if you can't change my circumstances... Can you bless me to be more patient with my child tomorrow? Can you bless me to get through the lack of sleep with kindness? I think Nephi did that. There's this beautiful story in 1 Nephi 7, where Nephi is tied with cords from his brothers. I would have prayed for a change of circumstances. I would have prayed that the cords be removed. But listen to Nephi's prayer. He says, I prayed unto the Lord. This is 1 Nephi seven seventeen. I prayed unto the Lord saying, O Lord, according to my faith which is in thee, wilt thou deliver me from the hands of my brethren? Yea, give me strength that I may burst these bands with which I am bound. Do you see the difference? Frequently, our prayers simply center on changing my circumstances. Please bless my mom that she will be healed from this disease. Change our circumstances. But we need to include a prayer for the boat. That's what Jesus is really asking. What can I do for the boat? How can I help change you? Not your circumstances. So we ought to pray, bless my mom. Take the sickness away. But if not, would you please strengthen her and give her the ability to endure the pain that she has? Could she have peace in her heart? Change her? Could you change me as well? Could you plant in my heart an acceptance of thy will? Can you help me know how I can bless my mom and maybe each other if she has to leave us? Bless the boat, Lord because we're going to be tossed and buried and broke upon. It's okay. 
like Jesus to pray that the storm go away. But give him something you know he can do and wants to do. Tell him how he can change you, not your circumstances. What can he do to change you? I like where the Lord says, I'm not going to do it to you all at once. We're going to take away the bad and we're going to fill it with good, but we're not going to break you. That's in the Jacob 5 narrative. Yeah. So good. So why does it keep saying the brother of Jared? I have an opinion. Now, I could be dead wrong, but maybe the reason why they leave out his name is because to the author, if we just say the brother of Jared, it makes us think differently, like how we read it and how we talk about it. I don't know if you've seen the famous cartoon of the guy who's trying to write the name of the brother of Jared on the plates and he can't spell it because it's so complicated. He's like, Mahanre Mori, Mahanre Mori, and then he scratches it out and he just writes, ah, the brother of Jared. Um, I think that's funny, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think there's another story there. One way to read it is the brother of Jared representing Jesus. Before you give us your theory, Mike, I love this date from from Elder Holland. He says, those 28 verses in the third chapter of Ether may well be the single most remarkable encounter with Christ ever experienced by mortal man in this world. And what a lesson in meekness that such an unprecedented revelation coming to one of such unparalleled faith does not even give us the name of the prophet to whom it came. (laughs) Right. What a stunning, silent declaration in a world nearly drowning in a sea of egotism and self-centeredness. That's significant that we don't have his name. We don't even have his name. But I'm curious what your theory is. So first, I got to give a shout out to this individual. We all have people that have influenced us. So I'm just going to tell the story. I was on my mission in Chicago, and I had a companion who said, let's not play basketball let's go to take an institute class. And I was like, are you kidding me? We only have so many hours that, you know, to play basketball. And he said, no, trust me, you'll like it. So we go to this guy's class and he's teaching. And I just remember going, wow, like the scriptures are so deep. And at that, it was at that point in Tom Valletta's class where I said to myself, I want to know the scriptures. I want to read them and know them and see things that maybe I've been missing. And I'd read the Book of Mormon, but he was talking about stuff that I was like, I've never read that before. And many of you listeners out there have commented to us and you've said things like, man, I've read the Book of Mormon, but I I really appreciate how you've kind of exposed some of these other ideas. And I got to tell you, that's kind of how I try to teach because of the influence of guys like Tom and another guy, Lee Donaldson, same kind of thing. And so both Lee and Tom were um, authors in a book that we'll post in the show notes. And in this book, there's an article called Jared and His Brother, and Tom Valletta wrote it. And so I just wanted to say, these ideas are not my ideas. This is Tom's stuff, and it's just so good. But he basically says, maybe the brother of Jared is a type. And a type is just a symbol, something that could represent something else that's also real. And so in this article that he writes about the brother of Jared, he says that the brother of Jared could very well represent Jesus. And so the name Jared, one of the meanings is to go down. And so think about what Jesus did. The gospel is that Jesus came down so that he might bring us up. And so that idea of the gospel or the good news of Jesus is just repeated throughout, even in his name. And so just to kind of go through some of these He's a large and mighty man. We read that in Ether 134. 
And in Luke 2.52, we read about how Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. In the first chapter of Ether, he is commanded to gather his people, their flocks, and their seeds. That's Ether 1, 40 through 43. He asks that their language be not confounded. I love this. What's the answer that he gets? What's God going to bless him with? Your prayer is that your language not be confounded. (laughs) I'm not only going to do that, but I'm going to give you a promised land and make you my people. I just think that's so symbolic that what they prayed for wasn't even close to what he offered them. These are revealing like the character of God. Sometimes, you know, you can read the scriptures and you can say, okay, what does this tell me about Revelation? But then you can also read it and, and unpack the layer of what does this tell us about God? And so you can go through and highlight compassion. And God says, he's very compassionate. I'm going to make you a greater nation than any nation that's been on the earth. And all you asked for is don't yeah. change our language. Yeah, keep our language. So what is what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus is like the brother of Jared. He is going to lead his people to be the greatest nation, the kingdom of God. That's it. That's the big deal. First Timothy 2, 5 Jesus is the mediator. He's this intermediary. Uh, He's commanded to gather his people, as we've talked about. And Jesus in Luke 13 says, I'm going to gather you like a hen gathereth her chickens. He's commanded to lead his people in their trek. So if you go to Ether 2, 1 through 13, as they're going on their journey, he's their leader. And all are commanded to follow Jesus, Matthew 4, 19. You have the vision of the cloud. In the second chapter of Ether, it talks about the Shekinah or this cloud that's coming upon them. Go to verse 4. It came to pass that when they had come down into the valley, the Lord came down and talked with the brother of Jared in a cloud, and Jared saw him not. And a lot of this is tied into temple motifs. So in the 17th chapter of Matthew, in what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus leads his three apostles up into the highest peak of the mount, and it talks about that the Father speaks to them in a cloud. Now, for those of you that love the book of Exodus, we see kind of the same things going on with the cloud that leads the Israelites. And so these are multi-layered. The brother of Jared could represent Jesus, but he could also represent all prophets. The small stone. So in the third chapter, he gets the stones and he takes them to the Lord and he says, you know, will you touch him? Verse four. I know, O Lord, that thou hast all power and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. Therefore, touch these stones. And the idea is that if you touch them, that will have light and we can cross the sea. And the word for stone is kind of cool. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a crassus of a couple of words, Ab and Ben, that's father and son. Jesus is the stone of Israel. So many references in the New Testament talk about him being the stone or him being the light of the world that leads us through the darkness of mortality. So some references for you are John 8, 12, John 9, 5, and then as to the stone of Israel, Acts 4, 11. There's a bunch of them. We'll put them in the show notes. I love Helaman 5, 12, right? Remember the rock that we must stand on. And by the way, we did this when we did the David Butler podcast. When you're standing on the stone, Jesus is the stone. He is the foundation stone. That's right there at the ark. You're in the Holy of Holies. And so when the brother of Jared says, touch these stones, I think it's 
It's also a pun. Touch these stones, but he's coming to the stone. He's coming to Jesus because he's going to see him. And then just a couple more as the brother of Jared representing Jesus. He has this vision on the top of a high mountain. And we read that the name of the mountain is Shalem. And it's verse one of chapter three. And then it says, they called it this because of its exceeding height. Now, I don't know where that word means height, but I really like this from David Butler, where he says, Akkadian is the oldest known Semitic language, Semitic being the family of languages that includes Hebrew. And it's attested to like way back, way back in the day. And Akkadian, Shalem, appears as Shalmu, which means complete, whole, or healthy, or peaceable. And then he writes, I think the name the Jaredites gave the mountain meant something like this, Mount Peace, or the Peaceable Mount, or the Hill of Perfection, or the Mound of the Shalems. Or really, I think Mount Shalem was the name that meant for all those things to the people who named it. Now the point Jerusalem, it has that that shalem root inside of it. It's this peace or perfection. So he's coming once again to this state of perfection, this state of peace. And that's who Jesus is. That's who he is. And he takes us there. And notice also verse two, the middle of that, where he says, don't be angry with me because of my weakness. And then he says, you know, we're unworthy. And he talks about the fall. Jesus sees that. He sees the weakness in me, but he takes me home. Middle of verse three, where he says, oh, Lord, look upon me in pity. Verse four, I know you have all power. Touch these stones. In other words, to me, the brother of Jared represents Jesus, but he also represents us saying, touch me, bring me home. I know that you can see everything and yet I trust you. You're going to take me home. couple more. So he has this awesome vision on the top of the mount. Jesus, Matthew 17, takes his disciples to the top of the mount in the Mount of Transfiguration. And then finally, Ether 4.1. Look what we read. Ether 4.1 reads like this. The Lord commanded the brother Jared to go down out of the mount from the presence of the Lord. So we're coming out of the temple experience. Now, this is what you do. Write the things which you have seen. And they were forbidden to come unto the children of men until after that he should be lifted up upon the cross. And for this cause did King Mosiah keep them, that they should not come unto the world until after Christ should show himself unto his people. And after Christ truly had shown himself to his people, he commanded that they should be made manifest. There's something in here about timing and about sacred experiences. But in Matthew 17, after Jesus comes down from the mount with his apostles, he basically tells them in verse 9, don't tell anybody about this. And think about the experience. If you think about Ether 3 as a temple experience, there's some things that we talk about and there's some things that we don't. That's what the word mystery means. Mysterion means literally shut your mouth. But now let's talk about Ether 3. Like what's going on in here where he says, Never before at any time has anyone seen me. That's 15. Never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created, for never has man believed in me as thou hast. But notice the contrast from there on out. It's even all men were created. Verse 17, Jesus showed himself unto this man Verse 18, that this man. So there's a distinction here between 
man in general, humankind, and this man or that man or that individual. Even Jesus himself was referred to in verse 6 as it was the finger of a man. So it seems to me personally that what the Lord is saying is never have I showed myself unto human fallen mankind because mankind has not had faith in me like this man did. And so there's a difference between the general, never have I showed myself unto man. He's not saying I didn't show myself unto Adam or Enoch or Noah. I'm just, I haven't showed myself unto humankind. Which brings me to this. So it's, I got to paint this picture. So it's 1992. I'm a return missionary and I'm in a bookstore and this commentary on the Book of Mormon comes out. And I, you know, I've read the Book of Mormon a couple times at this point in my life and I love the Book of Mormon. You know, you know, when you come off your mission, you're like, I got this. Like, I know what's in there. But I was always troubled by Ether 3 because I was like, what is going on? And I come to this commentary written by Joseph Fielding McConkie, and I open up the fourth volume, and I say to myself, if they answer the question that I have about Ether 3, I'm going to get my wallet, and I'm going to buy this commentary. So I open it up, and I read their answer, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy it. And this really introduced to me one of the ideas that it's okay to not know, but there's like lots of rivers that you can go and swim in. And so I'm not really dogmatic about Ether 3, meaning I don't know if it's one thing. There's so many ways to read this. And so if one of these explanations doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. But Bryce just shared one that's a really great explanation. And like, I don't know. But in this commentary, on page 276 of the fourth volume, this is Milton McConkie. They write, this is a difficult statement. Never before have I shown myself to man. It's hard to fathom. And then they kind of go down the road of where Joseph Fielding Smith says, whenever Heavenly Father manifests himself to people, it's to introduce and bear record of the Son. And then he says, why would God say this? Because clearly he talked to, like you said, Seth and Enoch and Noah and those guys. So here's some explanations that he gives. First, Perhaps the Lord was speaking of the total and complete manner in which he revealed himself to the brother of Jared. Meaning, hey, here's my spirit body. I have a spirit body. Here it is. Let me explain to you the nature of God. He's spirit now, but he's going to take upon him flesh. The second option, and this is by Sidney Sperry, where he says, never before has he revealed himself to unbelievers or to the sons of men, which you kind of talked about. The third is by Daniel Ludlow, where he says another interpretation was that never had Jesus had to show himself to someone, meaning that because of his faith, the veil was rent because of the brother of Jared's faith. A fourth is from President Harold B. Lee, where he says that Maury Kimmer's experience lay in the fact that he saw the Lord Jesus as he would be, like this is what he's going to be. And Harold B. Lee said that's a very possible explanation. A fifth explanation. It may be that this is the first occasion in history, it seems to be the first according to our present records, where Jehovah manifests himself as Jesus Christ, the Son. And there's this verse in here where it says, I am the Father and the Son. That's Ether 3, 14. And so by divine investiture, he can speak as the Father, but clearly he's describing himself as the Son. And then finally, a sixth explanation. Perhaps the matter is just simpler than we have supposed. 
Could it be that the pronouncement is a relative statement, that it pertains only to the Jaredites? That is, it may be that Jehovah was explaining, in essence, never before have I shown myself to anyone in your dispensation, the Jaredite dispensation. So now there's six rivers you can go swim in, and you can explore those and and think about those. What I like about this in the commentary is for two pages, the authors go down these different avenues, and it really opened up my mind to scriptural interpretation, meaning I don't have to be so dogmatic about these things. And it opens up my mind to think maybe there's other things that because I had some preconceived ideas, maybe that isn't saying what I think it's saying. So I'm going to throw this out there. I certainly don't know. But if you look at the beginning of Ether, it never mentions Tower of Babel, for example. But our automatic assumption is, where are they leaving? The Tower of Babel. It never mentions the Tower of Babel. But there's an idea that in the Old Testament, there's this author or an editor called the Yahwist, and he lived during the monarchy. And during the time of the monarchy in Israel, around 1000 BC, to about Isaiah's time, there were different powers that rose and came to be. Like, for example, in the 700s, it was Assyria. Closer to Nephi's day, Babylon rose up as a power. And so the contention is, is that the Yahwist calls it the Tower of Babel and inserts that into the narrative right about the time of Nephi. Now, the problem is the brother of Jared is way, way before Nephi. Hugh Nibley talks about this, where Hugh Nibley says, you know what, it's interesting that it just says the Tower. And in his contention, that's probably what they would have called it. And then later they call it the Tower of Babel. And a later editor closer to Nephi's day calls it this. This text is much older than Nephi. So to Hunibli, at least, it kind of makes sense. Now, were there towers at that time? There were. Were they temples? One thing all these ancient cultures are doing is once they start developing writing and systems of government, they all build a kind of a temple some kind of structure, and it's usually something that's high. And so I think from the author of the Old Testament, from their perspective, and they're kind of punning on the name, they're riffing on the name of Babel and other words that mean confusion and to mix, because Babel to the people that built it meant the gate of God. And yet in the Jewish scriptures, they're going to call it the place of confusion, the place of mixing. The authors of these experiences in Genesis, they're essentially rubbing their nose at Babylon. And they're just saying, you guys are calling it the gate of God. We're going to call it the house of confusion. Now, I don't necessarily think that all languages were one language at that time. So another way to read it, perhaps, is that in either one, when they leave, look what it says. They don't want to have their language confounded. It says in verse 33, Jared came forth with his brother and his families and some of the other families from the great tower. At the time, the Lord confounded the language of the people. The language is mixed. Think about this. Words can be confounded where they don't mean what we think they mean or where they don't mean what we want them to mean. And to give an example, in our day right now, we live in a day where our language is being confounded. And I think one of the messages of the Book of Mormon is to keep their people together, sometimes they have to leave because the way that they use words or the way that they describe things, this apostasy, as it were, 
creeps in culturally and can destroy a people. We see this with the Nephites and the culture of violence at the end of the Mormon narrative. We see this here in Ether where they decide to leave because even their words are changing. Think about this. Can two people be speaking the same language, but they're not speaking the same language? Anyway, I just throw that out there to consider as another reading of Ether 1. Now, as far as the whole plan of salvation, these six chapters, and I'm so glad we're doing six in here, Bryce, is the whole plan. It's the whole plan of salvation. Their exodus is like the plan, like Ether 133, they leave the tower, they go down, they seek revelation, they go through the valley of the wilderness, they're directed by God in a cloud, they cross a bunch of waters, Ether 26, the brother of Jared is chastened by the Lord, they build their barges, they get revelation, they get the shining stones, they have the experience on the mount, and they cross and they get to the promised land. And if you think about what we just described, we just described the exodus or our return home, right? We leave our heavenly home. We go down into the lone and dreary world. A deliverer is prepared. We're tested. We get the gift of the Holy Ghost. We get baptized. The Lord chastens us. And the reason why is because he loves us. And just like the brother Jared goes to Mount Shalem, we go to the Mount, the house of God. We get revelation. We have an experience in the temple and we have trials. We have to put off the natural man, that crossing of the waters, so that we can come to our heavenly home. It's the whole plan of salvation. Now, I can't walk away from these chapters without saying something about the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. So bear with me. I'm going to do this really quickly, and I don't mean to rush through it. It's very important information, but I'm going to throw a lot of scriptures at you. There's a significant message here because Moroni brings it up. So if you'll go to Ether chapter 3, not only does Ether see the Savior and have an experience with the pre-mortal spirit body of Jesus, but then in verse 25, when the Lord had said these words, he showed unto the brother of Jared all the inhabitants of the earth which had been and also all that would be, and he withheld them not from his sight. The brother of Jared saw you. He saw your life. He saw every human being from the beginning of time to the end of time. The brother of Jared saw the future of the United States of America and every other nation. And then, verse 27, the Lord says, write them. Now, I don't know the degree of specificity. I don't know how low he got. But let's just assume that in that book, he wrote everything he could about every person from the beginning to the end of time. Let's call that the book of everything, just to give us a handle. The brother of Jared wrote down the vision that he saw of every human being from the beginning of time to the end of time. Now, he was told that in chapter 3. Chapter 4, he comes down from the mountain and he writes them. He was also told that they couldn't be read until after Jesus comes in the flesh. So look at verse 2. After Christ truly had manifested himself unto his people, he commanded that they should be made manifest. So somewhere in the visit of Christ to the Americas, they opened up the book of everything. They opened up the book of the brother of Jared. So the Nephites knew about you. They knew about us. 
They knew about America. They knew about the history of the world. They opened up the book of everything about every person who had lived from the beginning of time to the end. So where could that possibly have been? Now, I don't know, and it's not for sure, but here's my best guess. Go to Third Nephi chapter 26. Now, we're going to flip back and forth from Ether 4 to Third Nephi chapter 26. So, Moroni said that when Jesus manifested himself to the Nephites, he commanded that the record of the brother of Jared's were opened. So here's where we guess that happened. Look at verse 3 of chapter 26. He did expound all things even from the beginning until the time he should come in his glory. Doesn't that sound very, very similar to what the brother of Jared wrote in his book? So maybe that's when Jesus said, get it out, let's translate it, and so you can have it. But at some point, the Nephites had that record. He did expound all things even from the beginning until the time he should come in his glory. So wherever it happened, Nephites have the record of the book of everything from the brother of Jared. Now, keep your finger in third Nephi, and let's go back to Ether 4. Moroni picks it up. So verse 3, And now, after that, after Jesus revealed the book of everything to the Nephites, they have all dwindled in unbelief. So not only did the Nephites apostatize, but they apostatized with access to the book of everything. They have all dwindled in unbelief, and there is none save it be the Lamanites. And they, meaning the Lamanites, have rejected the gospel of Christ. Therefore, I am commanded that I should hide them up again in the earth. Now, read very carefully verse 4. Moroni says, I have written upon these plates, meaning the gold plates. I have written upon these plates the very things which the brother of Jared saw. And there never were greater things made manifest than those that were made manifest to the brother of Jared. And the Lord hath commanded me to write them, and I have written them, and he commanded me that I should seal them up. So a portion of the gold plates were sealed. It appears that Moroni wrote the sealed portion of the gold plates, and Moroni sealed it. And what's included in that is the record of the brother of Jared, where he saw every human being from the beginning of time to the end of time. And now we're going to go back to 3 Nephi 26. Let's see what's going to happen to the sealed portion. And here's my point. I don't want to, I don't raise this simply to talk about speculation. There is a very significant point to why I would raise this information. So picking up in 3 Nephi 26, where Jesus teaches them everything from the beginning to the end, Mormon now writes, but behold, the pla- this is verse 7, but behold, the plates of Nephi do contain the more part of the things which he taught the people. And these things have I written. So now we're into what's on the gold plates, not what's in the record of the Nephites. These things have I written, the gold plates that came from the hand of Mormon. These things have I written, which are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people. And I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again to this people. Now verse 9. And when they shall have received this, Mormon's record, the Book of Mormon as you and I now know it, when they shall receive this, which is expedient that they should have first, 
to try their faith. And if it so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. But if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. Behold, I was about to write them, meaning I was about to put the brother of Jared's book on the gold plates, at least in the portion that Joseph was going to translate. But the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. My point is, we have a key that unlocks the sealed portion of the gold plates. And that key is the Book of Mormon. When we pass that test, we will unlock the other greater portion of the gold plates. Now, going back to Ether 4, Moroni says that same thing. Verse 6, the Lord said unto me, so this is after he wrote on the gold plates what the brother of Jared saw, these things shall not go forth unto the Gentiles until the day when they shall repent of their iniquity and come clean before me. In that day that they shall exercise faith in me, saith the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me. Then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, even unto the unfolding unto them of all my revelations. Verse 15, O you Gentiles, when ye shall rend that veil of unbelief which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness and hardness of heart and blindness of mind, then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hid up from the foundation of the world, then Yea, when you shall call upon the Father in my name with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then shall ye know that the Father hath remembered the covenants. Verse 16, Then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John and the brother of Jared, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. There is so much more Scripture that we could have if we passed that test. Now, in the days of Joseph Smith, the Lord said something significant. If you'll turn to Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, we now turn to the days of Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon's been printed. It's in their hands. A considerable amount of time goes by, and the Lord says this. This is section 84, verses 54 through 57. Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things which you have received. Now, he's going to tell us what that is in verse 57. What is it that we've treated lightly? But treating that thing lightly, verse 55, because of our vanity and our unbelief has brought the whole church under condemnation. And this condemnation resteth upon all the children of Zion, even all. And they shall remain under this condemnation. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will remain under condemnation until we repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments, which we'll call the Bible, not only to say, but to do. Passing the test of the Book of Mormon, I think, has two pieces. 
It's in what we say. It's in what we know about the book. It's how we study the book. It's how we teach and testify. It's the fact that our sacrament talks are filled and dripping with the doctrines taught in the Book of Mormon. It's that we use the Book of Mormon to teach constantly from. We solve problems. We use the Book of Mormon in what we say. And we live it. We live the teachings of the Book of Mormon. We become the people that the Book of Mormon teaches us to become. When we say and do, we will unlock the sealed portion and have access to the greater truth that is waiting for us if we are just faithful to what we have received. If you think about the Book of Mormon as a type of Jesus, it comes forth with a fullness to come forth later. And I find that really interesting that they mentioned John right there in verse 16 of Ether 4, because John in the book of Revelation, it's one of those books that people pick up and they're like, what is this? John has this panoramic vision where he sees everything. And I think Moses is seeing the same thing in the book of Moses and the brother of Jared, same stuff. He's seeing the same thing. And so the message is, like you said, if we take this We'll have the fullness later. There's so much more that's going to come during the millennium. And I remember one time Cal Stevens saying that. He's like, get to the millennium. If you can survive the things that are happening right now, if we can just hold true, if we can just hang on, getting to the millennium, the fullness will come later. Yeah. There's a reference in an early section of the Doctrine and Covenants to Hiram Smith, who was told, you need to start studying my scriptures before you go out and preach my scriptures. Here's a fascinating phrase. This is Doctrine and Covenants eleven twenty two. But now hold your peace, study my word which hath gone forth among the children of man, that's the Bible, and also study my word which shall come forth among the children of men, or that which is now translating, that's the Book of Mormon, until you have obtained all which I shall grant unto the children of men in this generation." So it seems like the Book of Mormon and the Bible and what came through Joseph Smith is the scripture that is intended to get this generation into the millennium. And then Hiram was told, and then shall all things be added thereto. So we've got to pass the test of the Book of Mormon. We've got to get to the millennium, or I don't know when it will happen, but at least get to the millennium using the scriptures of our generation— And then we will unlock all the scriptures that Jesus has for our benefit. I like that. So a couple more thoughts. Maury Ankimer, Mahanrei Maury Ankimer, there's a blessing that Joseph gives to Reynolds Cahoon's son. So he blessed the baby Mahanrei Maury Ankimer. And when he had finished the blessing, he laid the child in the bed and he turned to Elder Cahoon and he said, I've just given your son the name of the brother of Jared. The Lord has just shown it or revealed it to me. And so that's where that comes from. And Mahanrei Moriankamer, the name Moriankamer actually pops up as a place name in the Jaredite record. A mountain was named Moriankamer. Yeah, they named a place. And that's really kind of a cool name for the mountain. Now, if you remember from our podcast, we talked about when we did Mormon 1 through 6. Do you remember the Mount Cumorah? And remember those two words for priests in the Old Testament? Cohen and Comer. Comer's one of those. And Comer, the Kemerim, are the ones that are cast out 
by the, in my opinion, the apostates in 640, 622 BC by Josiah, they're all thrown out. And one scholar calls the Kemarim or the, the Comer ones, the Melchizedek ones, she says. These are the Melchizedek priests. And they believed in a God that was revealed, that was anthropomorphic. And so the name Moriankamer has the root of it, has the word for priest. Well, the rest of his word, it could mean a couple of things. In East Aramaic, it could mean the first part of his name could mean our land. Or if it was Akkadian, it could just mean leader. So however you read the word, the heart of it is he's a priest. Well, I would look at it as leading priests of our land, Moriankamer. Now, there's two characters in the book of Ether. You have Jared and the brother of Jared. The kings are all going to come from Jared. And the brother of Jared, his lineage, he is the priest. And so we see kind of the distinction of these two roles right here in the book of Ether. And even his name is significant. So I like that. I think that's pretty cool. And another thing I really like about the book of Ether is how it depicts God. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we believe that our Father in Heaven is our Father, that He has a body. And the term they use in scholarship for this is the anthropomorphic nature of God. That is just trying to to say essentially that He is like a man, anthropos in Greek, to be a man. So when He sees the finger, and then He says in verse 15, where God's speaking to Him, He says, Do you see that you're created after mine own image? Even all men were created in the beginning after my own image. In verse 16 of Ether 3, he says, Behold, this body which you now behold is the body of my spirit. And man which I have created after the body of my spirit, even as I appear unto thee in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. You don't read anything like this in the Old Testament. And yet there's all these scriptures in the Old Testament, especially from what we call the first temple period, where God is described as an anthropomorphic being as a man. And there's a really cool book called The Early History of God by this scholar named Mark Smith. He's not LDS, but what he does is he breaks down how do we understand God? How did the Israelites conceptualize God? And it's a fascinating study because in it, he talks about the earliest conceptions of God were highly anthropomorphic. And then something happened in Israel's history right around the time Deuteronomy was textualized, and we took God's body away. I, I have an article called How God Lost His Body that I've kind of been messing with, and I'm adding to it all the time, and it's on the website. Well, right about the time Deuteronomy is textualized, God's body becomes less important, and he becomes more of like, a, like an essence, like certainly non-corporeal or, or a God without a body and, or a God without an image to the point today where many Christians and many Jews would say, well, it's silly to think that God has a body. And then he drops this line in his book, which I find fascinating. He says this, even though during the exile, they kind of change God to reflect him as not having a body. He says, The anthropomorphic language of Yahweh and other divine beings in their heavenly realms never really disappeared from Israel. And then he says, it kind of stayed with them in some of their texts. And then he cites some of them. He cites Isaiah 27, 1, where Yahweh or Jehovah does battle with the sea. He cites some stuff in Daniel and Zechariah. And there's all this literature that didn't make the cut of the Bible in the Enoch literature, where they describe God as having a body. And then he says this, he says, 
the apocalyptic literature that kind of existed that doesn't make it into the Bible, it carried on this idea that God had a body. He says that that genre provided fertile ground for this material. Now, my contention is that's what the Book of Mormon is. The Book of Mormon is written by the Kemerim, the Comer, the priests of Melchizedek, and they carried on this genre of literature that was apocalyptic. Now, when we use that's just a fancy word to say, well, it says a lot of things, but one of the things it carries forth is this idea that God shows prophets the end times. Bryce just beautifully did this when he talked about the sealed portion. That's apocalyptic literature. That's God saying, let me show you the beginning from the end. Also, right rooted in this in Ether 3 is this vision of this anthropomorphic God, which is what the early Israelites believed, but was later scrubbed out of their history. So that by the time you get to Jesus, in Jesus's day, the conception of God certainly was not anthropomorphic. And even though Jesus is resurrected in Luke 24, when his disciples think that he's a spirit, he's like, no, go get some honeycomb. I'll eat in front of you. I'll show you that I have a body. Even today, some Christians struggle with this idea of how can I believe in an anthropomorphic God? Because then how could he be God? If he's got a body, he's got limitations. Now, Joseph's going to unpack all this in the Doctrine and Covenants, but I just wanted to geek out on that for a moment and say, the earliest conceptions of God are smack dab right here in the book of Ether. And you don't read anything like Ether 3 in the Old Testament. And if you did, I think we would have solved a lot of problems. So I love Ether 3 for those kinds of things, Bryce. I just think it's really cool stuff. Yep. Thank you, Moroni, for living long enough to give us this tremendous book. We're so grateful because this really is the only place in the Book of Mormon that you find this to this degree. And so we're so grateful Moroni's life was preserved long enough to include the book of Ether in the plates. So good. We're grateful for these six chapters. May you, as you deal with the darkness and the sea of your own journey back to Heavenly Father, may he reach down and light the way for you. May you find what you need help with on the boat. Pray for the boat. And with that, we will see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.